Welcome, everyone, to the Spiritual Brew Club. I'm your host, Michael Camp, and today we have Reverend uh, Derek Kabilis with us from the um, First United Methodist Church of Ashland, Ohio. Did I get that right? Mm, you Derek? got it, Michael. <laughs> Okay. Derek hosts uh, a podcast called Crossover Q, uh, and it's an effort to debunk conspiracy theories from QAnon. That's very mm -hmm. interesting. I'd like to ask you a question about that, too, sure. if we have time. And uh, so, Derek, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate you asking me to be on. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about your book. That's why mm. what, what the bulk of our conversation will be uh, Holy Hell. A Case Against Eternal Damnation. Great title. Um, so I am very interested in this topic. I've done a lot of writing and almost every book I've written, there's a chapter on this. Mm. And although I've never written a book exclusively on the topic, but it's it, it's tied into so many other things that us, um, what we call most of us call ex-evangelicals or post-evangelicals, mm -hmm. you know, we've deconstructed some of these things and this is a major one. Absolutely. And I really like the way your book brings kind of a different flavor to the conversation. There's been a lot of books written about this, but yours has really given a good, a really unique perspective from, uh, from the Methodist tradition. So I really appreciate that. We're going to get into it. Um, so I think, a good place to start would be for folks to really understand uh, more about your background. You know, what's your story? Uh, wh what is your uh, religious background and how did you come to question the doctrine of hell to begin with? Oh, um, well, I was born and raised a United Methodist. I've been a United Methodist basically my whole life. There were some times when I was a teenager, when I probably flirted with the evangelical world without knowing what that was or having you only flirted it. with it. Well, well you, you, were, you were spared. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's some good things in it, but there's some harmful things in it. So, but there is, there is a lot of evangelicalism in Methodism as well. Okay. Um, actually Methodism began in America, what we know of as the evangelical tradition, um, but it kind of got away from us to a certain extent. Um, so right. John Wesley would be considered an evangelical. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yep. Now I don't think Wesley would even remotely recognize the evangelical world. Yeah. Right. As, as coming from his tradition. But so I was, I was born and raised a United Methodist, which actually meant that we didn't talk about hell very much. You know, we are one of those mainline denominations. We're the the denominations that are, are big tents. We have a lot of conservatives and liberals alike. And uh, we're just known, I think, by most people as just being kind of a nice church. Uh, Methodists are nice, yeah, you know? Right. <laughs> and so we don't, we don't, make it a habit of browbeating our congregations with messages about hell and eternal torment and all of that stuff. But I was familiar with it. I mean, the message got across to me, even from a young age, that hell is constant torture and that it lasts forever. Right. Um, 
So when I got to seminary, that didn't quite add up. And even a little bit when I was an undergrad. And I think I thought of myself as, as what we call an annihilationist. I just interpreted all of those passages as being that the damned just sort of get snuffed out of existence somehow. Mm -hmm. But I didn't give it much thought more than that. And then I was teaching a class for uh, a previous congregation, the one in Uniontown, Ohio. And I asked them what, what they wanted to learn about. And they, they wanted a class on heaven and hell. Oh, uh, because I, 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 apparently I didn't talk about it very much and they were just interested in it. So I researched the heck out of it. This was several years ago. And by the time I was done with my research, I became absolutely convinced that the church has gotten this thing we call hell totally wrong. Right. In so many places. Mm -hmm. And that it, when you go way back in Christian history, you find evidence that a lot of people had a very different That's right. interpretation. Right. And that over the years, that uh, a more hopeful interpretation, um, essentially that that on a long enough timeline... God saves everyone and everything. Right. And over the years, you can see how that way of thinking about the afterlife had been pushed under the rug and suppressed and in some places persecuted. Right. Even yeah. though when you look at the Bible, especially in its original languages, I'm a New Testament guy myself. Um, when you, when you look at the new Testament in the original languages, as I'm sure we'll talk about here in a bit, uh, you become convinced that the idea of eternal torture is something that is completely alien to the writers yeah, of the new Testament. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get into that. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's really stark when you really, uh, uh, kind of like you said, you, you, your research unpeels something that's like, wait a minute, how come we didn't yeah. know this before? Right. And that's another question. But uh, and we're going to get into that. But I, I want to start with like talking about what I call um, maybe some heart issues or there's logical mm -hmm. reasons and there's emotional reasons to reject hell. Right. And these are the things that most people kind of struggle with because they don't know the original Greek and they don't know the yeah. history of the church and all that stuff, but they read the Bible and they go, wait a minute. I thought Jesus was a nice guy. And all of a sudden he's talking about going to hell. He's got mm -hmm. some hard passages here. What's going on. Right. So, so let's just have a, 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 some, some um, background on that kind of stuff first, before we get into the, the uh, technical things or the, the, um, the, uh, uh, exegetical things in the in the Bible and and in history. So, like, what's your experience? I know you talked about this. You had experiences where people in your churches they were either haunted by hell, or in mm -hmm. some cases 
some people are actually pleased by hell. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Rarely, so, but yes. Yeah, um, well, that, that, that's I see more of that in evangelicalism. But yeah. let's let. Uh, what was your experience seeing people haunted by hell first? You know, everyone knows someone close to them who has passed away. Right. Yeah. Death is the most normal thing in the world, and. We live in a society where not everyone is a Christian. Not everyone keeps the same uh, religious beliefs. And so people have worries about friends, about loved ones, about family members. And specifically, I recount in the book a story of a woman who uh, was absolutely saddened and at times fell into depression over her father who was not a devout Christian was not interested in God um, and her unshakable fear that he was burning in hell yeah and she actually talked about praying to God for her deceased father yet also at the same time believing that God was just kind of swatting away her prayers like like right 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 oh right yeah so it's Um, like a finality thing it's you really can't do anything about it but she had such sounds like she had such love for this person her father absolutely she wanted to pray for her maybe maybe there's a chance you know yeah yeah just something (laughs) right and the the idea of that struck me that someone's going to tell me that this woman has more love and compassion for her father than god does yes right right that doesn't make sense exactly um so many people have been haunted by uh other kinds of of bad teachings i mean i i've talked to a few people who were really scared because they were taught uh quite wrongly even according to catholic tradition that their miscarriages or their children who died before receiving baptism were sent to a place called limbo oh right limbo right which is kind of a gray nothingness but that's not even official catholic doctrine that's just kind of a a a folk teaching that started in some areas of catholicism and these people are really upset because they they are freaked out at their idea at the idea that that their child is caught right. in this like little pause place and they'll never get out. Um, so that that is in the back of people's minds somewhere. And in what I <laughs> what I tell people to the 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 kind of thought experiment I invite people to have is imagine, oh. if you will that you had a very good childhood and that you were raised by your parents in a very happy home and they came to all of your uh, basketball games or all of your cheerleading competitions, whatever it was, and they always had a safe, warm bed for you and gave you plenty of food, took you to the doctor, all that 
good, loving parent stuff. And then when you were an adult, you found out that that whole time that they were loving you and taking care of you and doting on you, that deep in the basement of their home somewhere, oh, gosh. <laughs> they secretly had a dungeon oh, my. where they were torturing and tormenting brothers and sisters you didn't even know you had. Right, yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that affect how you thought about your parents? Yes. Wouldn't yes. that change your interpretation of your own childhood? That, I think, is something what everyone goes through. Even though we, we don't think about it, we, we keep it kind of stuffed down in the back of our minds somewhere. When we are sitting in church singing, you know, holy, 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 praising this father who has infinite love, infinite mercy, is always forgiving, always blessing us, showing us grace. And yet at the same time, we're supposed to believe that that same God is keeping other brothers and sisters in a dungeon somewhere. Yeah, it's, it is crazy. And that's the cognitive dissonance of it all. Yeah. It's, it's and just, that hurts us. I mean, I, yes. I think that... Us, yeah, even though we might not talk about it or whatever, even though the preacher may not be hellfire and brimstone preacher, it's out there because it's in the Bible and it's referred to and it's in the culture it's, it's in the culture right it's, it's true background information and then right. as you mentioned there are those who seem to need there to be hell yes i remember in a previous church very small congregation one of my first churches i was preaching and, and a man came in sat toward the back kept his arms folded. And then afterward, I went to the back to greet people as I always do. And he came up, didn't shake my hand, looked me straight in the eye, and he said, hey, y'all uh, y'all preach uh, hellfire in here? Or do you <laughs> preach that feel-good gospel? And I said, well, sir, I, I think I said something like, you know, we preach the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And he said, yeah, that's what I thought. And he turned around and walked out and never came back. Yeah, right. Yeah. And it occurred to me that this man, even though he was saved, I mean, I'm assuming, even though he thought his relationship with God was good, nevertheless needed to to hear that the possibility was out there that he or anyone else could be damned forever that was an important thing that he needed an important idea that he thought he needed to be exposed to yeah it is it is remarkable um and 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 who knows what his what he thought inside but a lot i know a lot of people who who would say, oh well, that's because it's biblical, and if you're not preaching it, it's not built. You're not being biblical, or other people might, or other people do seem like they, you know, they want hell to be so that people can 
you know, be vindicated at the end. See, I was right. And you're going to hell, you know? <laughs> yeah. There's a sense in which I think people want to understand the world as a dichotomy. Right. They want to understand, they want to be able to put people in very easy categories so that life becomes clear and they can uh, easily navigate who is a good person and who is a bad person. Right. Yep. Um, and then there are those who I think want to hear about hell almost as a kind of prophylactic. Okay. As if, as if hearing about hell from time to time is the thing that will keep them on the straight and narrow. Okay. And like, I, I liken it to my mom had a paddle that hung on the wall of the kitchen. Right. And I don't think she ever used it, but she often pointed to it. It was the right? threat of the paddle. Yeah, it was the threat. And so I think that people fear that if we jettison the idea of hell as eternal torment, that they and everyone they know will have no more reason to be decent people. Yes, right. That's often an objection from evangelicals. Well, mm -hmm. if, if you're a universalist and everyone goes to heaven, then you know, why did Jesus come or why do we pre why do you need the good news, right? And yeah. it's it's like like, well, wait a minute. I mean, that's the only reason you believe is to avoid hell? I mean... <laughs> In my, my position, I want to be clear. My position is that for many of us, I assume myself to be included. There will be potentially something painful yeah we'll we'll get to that but that's a good okay. point yeah hell you know being a universalist folks does not mean that you don't believe that god will hold people accountable that no there are people that really need to be purified and and yeah. changed and corrected and and so forth we're going to get into that but that's a very good point right so but you one of the story one of the examples you gave i thought was really good to kind of tie up this this uh, theme that we're on is like, how do people handle this this doctrine of hell that they supposedly uh, they believe because it's taught in church, it's in the Bible, it's in the back of their mind. And so you have this example. And if Christians truly, really, honestly believed in hell, and at the same time, they truly, really, honestly love their neighbors, what would how would they live their life? Yeah, my my position is that no one actually believes in hell in the most serious sense of the word belief. Yeah. Because if they did, their lives would look very very different. Right? If you believed that the possibility existed for people to be punished for all eternity, your every waking moment would be spent evangelizing, converting, spreading right. the good news. And we would have a church culture that would not allow you to spend any time of the short, you know, 80, 90, 100 years, whatever you got, 
we would not allow you to take any of that precious time to go to the movies or read a book or anything like that because the threat is so massive. It would be immoral for you to stop and enjoy a cup of coffee. By the same token, and we would think even someone like Billy Graham was just a total lazy, terrible preacher because he spent too much time with his family. So, right. <laughs> you know, so they're not, if you're not out there, uh, uh, like trying to convince people, hey, you know, this is really dangerous, and I love you. I want you to. I don't want yeah. you to go there. Let's, you know, accept Jesus. You know, by that same token, we would never procreate if we really believed that our children could suffer such a ridiculously terrible fate. We would right. not take the chance. I, let's say your 16-year-old is like, well, I don't know what I believe. Maybe I'm a Buddhist. Maybe I'm whatever. Anyway, I'm going to go to a party right now. We would never let them get in a car. We would never let them yeah, right. uh, do anything. Even now, dangerous. they go to hell. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, when, when you start um. to imagine that people stand on the cusp of an infinitely terrible fate, it becomes really hard to defend doing anything other than trying to stop them. Right. Though well, that makes sense. I mean, um, there was always that, you know, thought when I was, I, I, I was, people are motivated to go into mission work, for example, or evangelize. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things, you know, Oh, you know, we're, we're obeying Jesus, but we're also, you know, we love people and we don't want them to go to hell or we want more people to go to heaven, whatever. And so yeah. uh, that was always in the back of our mind when I was in the mission field. I went to a Africa uh, among Muslim communities uh, as a missionary and, and aid worker. But that was always one of the things in the back of our mind, if not in the front of our mind. And when you, in my experience, when you when you show up in a country where ninety nine percent of the people around you are Muslims, mm. and they've been that way for centuries, mm -hmm. all of a sudden you think, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Mm. We're not going to convert that many people. No. <laughs> <laughs> These people are already set in their ways. Yeah, yeah. We're going to reach a few. We 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 thought we reached a few. And then what about all the ancestors of these people? How is that good news? Hey, I got some good yeah, news for you. Yeah. <laughs> so all yeah. that kind of a thing. So that really does, that's a great story you have that really explains it. All this is in the book, folks, uh, the, all these stories. Are, he's got a really good way of, uh, Derek has a really good way of explaining this by using real life examples. Mm -hmm. um, well, let's pivot a little bit and go into uh, some examples of mistranslations. So this is yeah. really important. So as far as, the, uh, let's start with the word hell. What, what are the most interesting examples of mistranslations of that word in the New Testament? Well, every use of the word hell in an English translation is a mistranslation or a, I, I call them lazy substitutions. 
the word hell as it comes to us is from a nordic word uh a a nordic source Mm -hmm. it refers to um the goddess hell and specifically her realm which is called niflhel or sometimes niflheim and niflhel isn't even hot uh it's it's just kind of cold and dreary and it's not all bad it's more of just a holding tank for sell, for souls until they they come back again everything in in nordic theology is like a a cycle right. um but we use that word for several different words that we find in the greek new testament uh the first one is of course uh the word Gehenna. Mm-hmm. And Gehenna is a very specific place. That's what people don't realize. And you can go there like in the world. I've been there. Yeah. It it's is near, outside of Jerusalem. It is a valley on the outside of Jerusalem um, that uh, was, was very famous in the ancient world for being a site uh, where Babylonians sacrificed children to the god Marduk. And there were some Israelite folks who, who joined in that effort. And so it became this uh, very unholy place, um, almost like a, a spiritually radioactive place. And so it became essentially... Uh, different scholars kind of argue about this. I, I think it makes sense to say that it became the the dumping ground of Jerusalem. Oh yeah, For, it, was, it was it was literally that. I mean, the Romans used to throw bodies in there if they were an insurrection exactly. or a criminal that so that warranted death. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thing. So so. It's it's got all these bodies and in garbage and refuse in it, right? Um, and as such, it, if you know anything about garbage disposal, you know the threat is always there, even in our modern world, of garbage dumps catching on fire. Mm-hmm. I I used to live near a garbage dump in Oberlin, Ohio, and they actually had water hoses that would spray down the whole thing every once in a while because when the microbes heat up and, and all sorts of chemical things happen, fires start all the time in garbage dumps that create a lot of smoke. It becomes very hazy, very dark. Um, and in that same way in, in a garbage dump like this, where you would have the bodies of paupers and, and criminals disposed of, you would have a, an outbreak of wild dogs. Uh, wild dogs oh, were a right. huge problem in ancient Israel uh, or ancient Palestine. And uh, they would fight and they would bare their teeth at one another as they fought over the, um, picked over the the flesh and bones of these criminals. And at the same time, you would have families of these poor people who were thrown into this debt come thrown into this dump come there to to cry and and mourn over them as we would come to a gravesite thus you have the outer darkness 
on the outside of the city of Jerusalem, where there is weeping and gnashing of oh, teeth. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, and this is how it was known, right? So and you that, have the weeping of the of the family and the gnashing of the teeth of the dogs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the and, outer darkness. Uh, I've never thought. I never thought of that one before. Yeah. Outside the city, where it's dark. Yeah. So, and it it did come as as far as my research shows. It did come to hold a spiritual significance. It, it wasn't just in their imagination as a physical place, right? But um the referent was very much an actual sort of physical location that they could all point to and say oh yeah that's the kind of fate he's talking that's the kind of ruin he's talking about in the same way the second most common word in greek that's translated as hell is the classical Greek word Hades. Mm -hmm. Hades is, of course, the in Greek mythology, it is the realm of the god Hades, the underworld. And they simply borrowed that term from the Greeks. Are we to think, then, that if someone dies and goes to hell, they will cross the river sticks are we to think that they will be greeted by cerberus the three-headed dog okay yeah the mythology are, of it. yeah yeah are they going to run into sisyphus yeah um pushing his rock up the hill over and over again that is just an example of first century judean thought borrowing something from the Greeks, not in a literal sense at all, but in a figurative sense. Heck, some places in Hades are not that bad. They're the Elysian fields, which are places where men hey, of honor go. You that's know? actually a, a brewery here in Seattle that I oh, go to. there you <laughs> Elysian go. fields, it's not bad. <laughs> so um, I, I don't think that... Uh, they meant to equate their use of the term Hades with a literal underworld in that sense. Right. Um, yeah. The only place in Hades where you see the kind of torment that I think people read into the New Testament is this very particular place called Tartarus. Right. And Tartarus is where you get the Deniades. Um, who are forced to carry these jugs of water with that have holes in them forever and ever and ever, and they can never fill up a basin. Or you have Sisyphus uh, pushing his, his rock up a hill only for it to roll down, that sort of thing. Um, Tartarus is only mentioned obliquely in the New Testament. Um, yeah, Jesus doesn't mention it. It's in, was it Peter? Yeah, I yeah. Yeah. Um, in Peter says that, or Second Peter, Second Peter, yeah, not not the real Peter, probably. Yes, yeah, so um, that's another issue. That's yeah. Sorry, disputed if he was. I even probably the just of lost book. some of your listeners. No, 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 your we, listeners. No, we're, are good. You're okay, your we've talked about this yeah. stuff before, so <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, 
uh he says god essentially in, in he he turns tartarus into a verb he essentially says god tartarized satan and his demons and what he means to say is that god threw them out of heaven as zeus through the titans off of Mount Olympus into right. Tartarus. That's what he yeah. wants to say. Right, right. It's not a reference to eternal torment. It's right, not right. a reference to torture. But, it's a, but even forever, still, forever, the forever. fallen angels, it's not human. So. No, no. But yeah. but it, it's my belief that on a long enough timeline, um, even, even Satan and his demons, however you want to characterize those figures from the New Testament, even they would eventually be redeemed by Christ. Yeah, we'll talk about that, but that's yeah. that's actually the view of uh Origin, one of the church fathers. So Origin of Alexandria. It's, right. It's not a uh you're not pulling it out of thin air too. <laughs> so um but let's let's let, let's pivot a little bit. We've got yeah. we've kind of uh focused on hell. There's three words Tartarus, uh, uh Hades and Gehenna. And I would add that for Hades in the Septuagint, it was the word used to replace the word Sheol to translate the word Sheol, which is yeah. really kind of like the, the holding place for the dead, right? Well, I, I mean, that's that's a great story because if you if you look at just the King James version of the Bible and how that version deals with the Hebrew term Sheol, when it is used in a way that makes it sound negative, the King James Version translates Sheol as hell. If it's used in a way that makes it neutral or even positive, it's translated as either grave or pit. Yes, right, right. And the best yeah. example of this yeah. is when Saul summons... He goes to the Witch of Endor and summons the ghost of Samuel from Sheol. And upon coming out of Sheol, Samuel's first instinct is to complain about being disturbed. Yeah. <laughs> you would imagine right. if Sheol yeah, yeah. were the kind of hell we tend to talk about, he would be happy for the break. Right, yeah. I'm good. Oh wow, I get to talk to someone else outside. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it would be it would be a nice little vacation for him. Right, right, yeah. But That's for him, point. Sheol is rest. It is right. peace. Right. Um yeah. yeah. So that's that's very interesting that 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 all of these things you unpack, there's different the the original meaning in the context of their culture and myth Greek mythology and all this stuff, or the fact that there's a dump outside Jerusalem called Gehenna and we translate that hell. I mean, it's just, it's just remarkable to me that so many things have been mistranslated and misinterpreted because of sloppy translations and by bi theological bias, etc. You so know what it is, Michael, real quick. Yeah, go ahead. Can I break in? Um, uh, sorry to interrupt you. I think what it really is, is that ever since sort of the scholastic period of philosophy, since you have like, if people know Thomas Aquinas and that whole crowd that came after him, we have tried to read the Bible as if 
all the biblical authors were referring back to some systemic uh, textbook of the way the afterlife actually looks, right? That somewhere there is a system, and we, we've used poetry, we've used symbolism, we have used these, these beautiful yet enigmatic and difficult to interpret symbols and words and ways of speaking from the Bible. And we've tried very hard to hammer them out into a concrete system, um, as if somewhere there is a geography book of the afterlife. Right, yeah, right. But actually, these, these guys are using poetry to try to describe um, very mysterious, uh, esoteric ideas about the nature of death and yeah. rebirth right. and eternal life. And when you try to bend that into some kind of mathematical formula, you lose all of what makes it great in the first place. Right. So, um, I, you know, that makes perfect sense. Let's let's talk about the the term eternal punishment and unpack that a little bit. Um, you got the two words, eternal and punishment. How how are those mistranslated? That's a a fantastic question because you do see that in your Bible, like when you um, open it up to Matthew twenty five or wherever several different places, you see those two words put closely together: eternal punishment. Those are both poor translations. Mm -hmm. um, eternal is the toughest one. Eternal, there, there is a, um, a wonderful scholar named Alaria Romelli. Yeah, I know her. Yep. Yeah, has done a... amazing work. She's got a very thick, long book. <laughs> But she has a, a shorter version that just came out, I think, a year oh, or two ago. I haven't seen that. Much more uh, accessible to your average reader. Yeah. Essentially, no one knows more about um, that word than she does. Yeah. Uh, in Greek, it is the word ionios. Mm -hmm. And ionios is where we get the term eon from right? Mm -hmm. uh, an eon, a long period of time or an age, mm -hmm. right? That's probably yep. the best translation of it. Ionios is not an eternal um, series of moments that stretches on forever and ever and ever. It is a reference to the next eon, the next age right they have a word for that kind of eternal for the kind of eternal that is a a series of moments stretching on into the future and that's aedios right and there Different are places term. where aedios is used not in terms of punishment right yeah and it, whenever it speaks of that punishment it's using ionios essentially saying the punishment of the age 
Right. The second thing you have to know is the word punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, the word for punishment is actually a horticultural term that means something like pruning. Right. Um, that it it it's not retributive punishment as we think about it today. It's not an eye for an eye or that kind of thing. It is punishment that is specifically performed in order to create growth. Exactly. Right. That is, it's it's punishment that has the good of the one being punished in mind. That's difficult for us to understand because we live in a world that is so often based on retributive punishment. We talk about, you know, having a reformative justice system. Um, In my opinion, that's kind of laughable. Um, uh, Somebody hurts somebody else, we just hurt them back as a form of retribution. What this is referring to is, um, well, what I would call a kind of purgation, right? A burning away of the bad so that the good can reach its full potential yeah no no that's real that's it you've nailed it um uh many people have uh you know translated this word there's another word tamoria that means true retributive punishment Mm. and uh they they didn't that's not in that's not what jesus used according to the greek translation he used the word kolasis which is the word that you just defined yeah and um, th- now I don't know. I'm not sure if you've heard of uh, I, I, right, right behind me. There's David Bentley Hart's translating translation of the New Testament. Oh, yeah. Right oh, absolutely. Yeah. He, so he he uses yeah. the term chastening of the age, the chastening of the age, chastening of the age. Beautiful. And then have you heard of uh, Dr. Ann Nyland, the source New Testament? I have not actually. Uh, you should I'm look sorry. it up. But she uses the, I love her term. She uses the term. The rehabilitation of the age of the yeah. for a period of time, right? Yeah. So that's that's you know the it's God's rehab program. It's like you like you said, you know, you're pruning someone, you're correcting them so that they could grow, so yeah. they could change, so that they could become a better person. And it's can not, I? Yeah, can go I, ahead. Can I share a personal story with that? Sure. One of the reasons why I think that translation spoke to me so deeply and why everything about Ionios and and Colossus makes sense to me is because when I was 29 years old, I had to have my right leg amputated. Oh, right. You will go into that in the book, right? Yeah. Um, And... I, I, it's a long story. I was born with a, a congenital limb difference that uh, just got worse and worse over the years. And eventually it got to the place where the best thing to do for me in terms of pain, I was on a ton of, op- I was taking methadone as a painkiller. Oh my gosh. Um, prescribed by my doctor. I mean, it was, it was insane the best thing to do was just to cut it off and to go through life with a prosthesis. And I think that gives me an appreciation for understanding 
that sometimes we need to have something cut away from us um, in a very painful way at times in order to enter into a new and better kind of life. Like now I walk essentially without a limp. I limped my whole life. I'm not pain-free, but I don't take opiates anymore. <laughs> like I, I don't have nearly the same kind of pain I used to have. Right. And right. It, it having that cut away gave me a new kind of life. In the same way, there are other um, uh, appendages, spiritual appendages that need to be cut away from me. Yeah. Right. And right. If they're still there by the time I cross over, I imagine that uh, Christ will come in the form of a surgeon and say, okay, let's get to work. You know? Yeah. Right. No, that this is bringing up the, uh, the other thing I want we wanted to talk about is that, um, you know, often people say, well, yeah, well, if you, if you don't believe in hell, what about Hitler or how, what about all these other terrible people? Yeah. And then, and then there's a kind of like a, a rationalization that, well, there are good people like us and there's bad people like all these other ones. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, you know, all of us go straight to heaven and all these bad people go straight to hell, but there's, what there, there's probably something in between because there is a lot of evil in the world. And, we, I think we believe that God holds people accountable, but also wants to restore people, desires to restore people. So I guess the first question on this is, um, you know, what's your response to people who say, hey, uh, when you die, uh, that's your last chance. That's the ultimate cutoff from securing one's salvation. How do you respond oh. to that? Well, that that's just completely arbitrary, isn't it? Um, to, to see life is like, a an 80 year long test that has this definitive cutoff point. Um, the truth is, is I think it would actually be a greater heresy to say that God would allow the evil of someone like Hitler or, um, Stalin or, Jeffrey Dahmer, so on and so forth, to be maintained in hell. Oh, right. That's a good point. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but I remember the first time I ever saw Return of the Jedi. I yeah, was this blown is a good story. <laughs> okay. Um, and spoiler alert. If it, it, it's a 40 year old movie, so hopefully you've seen it. No, before. I don't think you need um, to have a spoiler. Don't worry about that. But but the crazy thing is, I I'm, I I got the the video cassette trilogy when I was like 12, and so I watched the first two movies, one right after another, and you know Darth Vader just needs to get what's coming to him by the by the end of Empire Strikes Back. You're like, oh man. I can't wait to see justice come upon this dude and for him to uh, be banished forever, die a grisly death or whatever. And at the end, Darth Vader is redeemed. Right, right. And that blew me away. I had never seen a story where the villain receives a kind of redemption in mm -hmm. the end. 
Right, right. And that made it so much better. That is such a better story and a much more complete victory, is it not? Yes. Not just that the guys like Hitler and Stalin and Mao get what's coming to them, but isn't the greater, more triumphant idea that God is actually able um, strong enough and patient enough and loving enough to redeem a soul rather than simply to vanquish it. Right. No, that's a powerful uh, a notion. And I think we, we both believe that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a uh, superior way of, of handling these problems than just throwing people into hell. (laughs) Yeah. A a God who just, I mean, think about it like this. It's the difference between believing in a God that just literally in the case of Gehenna throws everyone into a landfill in a God who's actually strong enough, smart enough and loving enough to take that raw material of people's souls and create something good and useful and redeemed out of it. Right. right. Um, and so I, I think that to those who want to argue that there must be eternal torment, um, I would argue that, that they besmirch the holiness of God. God is no. not that lazy that all he does is just toss us away and forget about us. Right. right. No, no, I agree. So, um, and, and the, uh, another thing that I, I bring up too, is that, you know, I, I like to believe that most of the time people kind of get their purification in this life. Yeah. They go through some really hard times not because God's punishing them, but because it's the consequences of the way they live their life. Absolutely. You know? And so, I mean, that's another side of it. That's, it's just, like, that's just what we call discipleship, right? Yeah, right. It's that process of purification. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have aids in doing that. In the Wesleyan tradition, we call those the means of grace. Yes, right. My argument is that whatever the Ionian Colossus is, right? Whatever the uh, chastening of the age is. Right. The rehab- is, God's rehab program. <laughs> it, that it's it's a means of grace, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like fasting, prayer, Eucharist, mm-hmm. um, whatever you want to put in there. That's why I called the book Holy Hell. Right. Because yeah. whatever it is that hell is, is a holy thing. And it makes us more holy right. so that we can be united with our God. Right. So that begs the question that when we when we talk about these things, then people will say, oh, wait a minute. Sounds like you're talking about purgatory. And we know that's what the Catholics believe. <laughs> and as Protestants, we don't believe in purgatory. That can't be true. What's your response? <laughs> uh, it, it absolutely is. Um, my, my argument with the Catholics is that their purgatory is too small. Uh, for, for Catholics, purgatory is the place where uh, the saved and the faithful go 
to have their sins burned away. Mm-hmm. My response is that actually everything we call hell is actually a purgatory where everyone goes to have their sins burned away. Mm-hmm. And um, that burning is a good thing. It's a holy thing. It may be painful. I don't know. Like, it certainly seems to be something that that Jesus wants to warn us about in order to get us to more fully take care of that stuff while we walk this earth. Right, right. Take care um, of it now instead of later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <right. laughs> um and that's that's what discipleship is. Yeah, that makes sense too. But uh it it doesn't go on the way we think of it is is going on forever and ever. It right. has a goal, it has an right. end point. Right. I love Dante. Dante, real quick. He, he, Dante Alighieri is where we get so many of our, our cultural Dante's images Inferno. of hell. Yeah, yeah. Right, Dante's right. Inferno. Um to me, uh, in in he has all kinds of problems. His book is essentially political. I talk about that in my book. Um, it has much more to do with the politics of the time than with religion, in in my estimation. But um, the second, the sequel to the Inferno, Purgatoria, where he talks about purgatory, has this beautiful scene at the end where. Uh, Dante ascends the mountain of purgatory and it, at the end to get to the tree of life he has to, to cross this barrier that is like um, crystal flame and he steps into it and he says it was so hot he wanted someone to dump molten glass on him in order that it might cool him down. But then, after he's across it, he can barely remember the pain. And what he does remember, he remembers fondly because he knew that it was the only way to get to the tree of life. Yeah, right. That's an interesting story. I I have used that image in my own spirituality to think about. And when I've counseled other people who I I actually just talked to someone this week who's about to go through an amputation and they're very upset. And um, uh, that's, that's the best image I can come up with is, yeah, this might hurt. But the thing that's on the other side of it is so good Mm -hmm. that you won't regret it at all. Yeah. Well, that's a good Um, story. Yeah. So the other point I would make, and I'm sure you agree with this, is um, uh, if there is a such a thing as a purgatory or some kind of a process that some people go through, it's not a punitive or punishment for punishment no, no. okay according to this your list of sins requires whatever a hundred years or 10 years yeah, or a no. year and then you're out no it's a refining experience yeah that i i, I picture it almost as being not is actually being a uh and and once you get over the pain and you start to realize oh 
this is good. Yeah. And you start actually enjoying it and going, okay, where else do I have to work on or whatever? I, who yeah, knows what it's like. absolutely. I, that's I, kind of the way I, our lives happen when you try to be honest with yourself. Okay, how do I change myself and become a better person? That's what happens. You you go, oh, this is painful. I have to I have to address this issue in my life. And then when you do address it, you realize, oh, okay, that that's actually better. I'm glad I did that. <laughs> the best analogy I think you can have you you came close to it with using the word rehabilitation, right? I think physical therapy. If mm. anyone out there has ever been through physical right. therapy as they've recovered from a surgery or an operation, I've had to do it several times. And man, that first visit always sucks, right? Right. Um, and you're tired. You, you, there's pain involved. You're, you're moving your body in ways that it doesn't want to move. But then what happens? You start to loosen up. You start to gain strength. You start, and it, it starts to feel good. Yes. Because you know you're getting stronger. Right. You know your body is being, in some sense, redeemed. Right. I think that's what purgatory is for the soul. No, that's a good that's a good analogy. Yeah. So we're getting close to our um our time, Derek, but there's one oh, more. Oh man, we could I do have. another one if you we want. We could. But I do have one more question before we wrap yeah. up. And, um, you know, it's it's being a being a universalist. It's being mm -hmm. someone who doesn't believe in hell anymore, believes that everyone will be reconciled to God. And we it's a mystery how it will happen. But we have little posts and signposts that say, hey, it's probably like this. It's probably like this mm -hmm. that we're discussing. But um, what are the beneficial, wonderful implications for no longer believing in hell? Oh, wow. Well, for one thing, you you come to realize that you have finally gotten rid of that cognitive difference, yeah. that cognitive dissonance, dissonance, yeah, in your in your soul. That when you praise God, you no longer have that um, that itch in the back of your mind that says, "Wait." is this God actually torturing other people, right? Like you can now be in a, a more complete relationship with God, believing that God has you and everyone else's best intentions at heart. And it, 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 restores the ability for you to kind of look God in the face again, right? right. Mm -hmm. Like this right. whole time you realize that you have been double-minded about yes. God's holiness. And now that is removed. It also allows you to share the gospel in a freer way that you no longer have to have this hidden little secret that everyone knows is there that you're actually telling someone they're going to burn forever if they don't believe you right yeah. now you can explain why it is that you're a christian or um why it is you know i i 
I realize a lot of your listeners probably don't want to use that title to describe themselves anymore. And I understand that. <laughs> I, I, right. I get that. Um, but for those who want to follow Jesus, you can, you can explain why that is without any hesitation. And then if someone says they don't believe it, you can say meaningfully, that's okay. Right. Right. God has still got your best wishes at heart. It it takes the pressure. Exactly. Out, right. You, you know. You right. Um, you don't have to banish someone. Okay. He's <laughs> he's he's rejecting God, yeah. and and he's going on the way to, to hell. And you don't have to thing. be scared for your friends and loved ones right. anymore. I can't tell you how I many know. people have talked about uh, having the conversation with someone quote unquote who's on their deathbed like yeah. trying to make sure that they yeah. are saved before they die They're trying to get them to say the prayer and all that this is stuff, such right? a clunky terrible thing to yeah. do in a holy moment and, when and someone and, is crossing that threshold right. and sometimes i've seen people do that at funerals They'll oh <laughs> it's really tacky that, it's really uh, tacky it's so offensive it is but no this this is good um yeah uh there's so many you're you're, you're set free in so many different ways your image Absolutely. of god the character of god uh the fear of the of hell for yourself or your, for your loved ones uh the the pressure of evangelizing and you know all that kind of a thing it's just you look at the world differently and also you realize that the good news is actually really good news. You don't have to have bad news Amen. first before yeah. you hear the good news. That's and right. the good news is for heck, you know, people need to hear good news in this life yeah. and have a healthy outlook on their life and how to address death and how to live life in a way that's meaningful and loving and makes the world a better place. And that's why you share the good news. Not Amen. to not to keep them out of out of hell, but to bring them into what Jesus called abundant life. Because without it, you're 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 you people struggle, right? So one of the uh, things I think our society is starting to figure out is how much we are all shaped by trauma. Mm-hmm. And the 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 universalist presentation of the gospel is not only a, a a form of the gospel that is not itself traumatic but is actually the kind of gospel that can heal people that's a from good their point trauma. right yeah right well this has been great derek i really appreciate your insights mm. into this you've thought a lot about it you wrote a book we're talking about holy hell uh, the Case Against Eternal Damna Damnation uh, by Derek... Uh, um, Kabilis. Kabilis. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's you a tough the, one. It's you got the cue on that one. Yeah. And by the time this comes out, I mean, it's already available on Amazon for yeah. pre-order. So go to Amazon, type in Holy Hell, and uh, you'll find it. And... Uh, I, I read the uh, advanced copy. It's a great book and, and an excellent you. contribution to the already, um, you know, fairly uh, broad 
uh, yeah. collection of other books on the topic, but Derek's has got a great, a really good, unique perspective. So, so Derek, thanks again for being with us. Um, I'd love to talk further and get to know you more and see how we can work together. Uh, I, 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 um, I really admire you for what you're doing in, in the Methodist church. So thanks oh, again. Thank you for what you're doing. Um, this podcast I know is helpful to a lot of people who are, who have been traumatized right. uh, by the church, by Christianity and who are trying to figure out what that means for them. Right. And no, so you're a healing voice to those folks. Yep. Well, thank you. So folks, and uh, that's it for this episode. Until the next episode of the Spiritual Brew Pub, enjoy responsibly.